This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Joseph Anthony Cress. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boom. For this episode of Guest Planning, we are very delighted to be joined by Father Sean Kilcauley of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Cheers. All right. So many of our listeners will have uh, seen and or heard you at Seek on Pints with Aquinas, perhaps in your diocese setting itself. But for those who don't know you, uh, would you just say a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, I'm Father Sean Kilcalley. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, where now I am the pastor of St. Leo the Great Parish in Palmyra and St. Martin's in Douglas. Um, for about 10 years prior to being pastor, I was the director of the Office for Family Life, where I did focus a lot of my attention on um, both intervention and healing and um, prevention of ex early exposure to pornography. And... Um, and which which then just led to a lot of ministry opportunities. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is clergy formation and uh, and working with seminarians and future priests um, and just helping them to be equipped um, both both for themselves and for the parishioners that will be entrusted to their care in the future um, just to help facilitate conversion in the midst of a hypersexualized culture. Hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe just as a, a way to lead in or a first thought, uh, we had a professor of moral theology at the House of Studies who would say that the evil one, as a kind of strategy, he likes to convince us that the life of grace and virtue just isn't even possible, like he tries to expunge it from our very imaginations. And I think that we find ourselves at a point, um, you know, in the 21st century, where a lot of people just have difficulty even imagining what it would be like to be chased. Um, so yeah, from your experience and your, you know, like your ministry, your, your service of people who have been struggling with this, uh, you know, is it, is it possible to live this way? Is it possible to kind of recover from heal and grow beyond pornography addiction? Have you seen it? Uh, can you testify to it? Yeah. So yeah, that, that is the, my number one point that I've been making lately when I give talks is that it is possible to be free. And I, it's really important that, that we tell people that, um, like I can give a lot, lots of counter examples where um, early on in giving talks, I was speaking to a men's group and uh, and I just brought up a man that I know who had been in at, at about five years of freedom at that point. And, and I just sort of passively said, and, and this person's been free for about five years. And then somebody in the crowd raised their hand and they were like, wait, wait, what, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, he has not like watched pornography or committed masturbation in, in five years. And this man goes, that's possible. I never knew that was possible before. Cool. And, and unfortunately, like this is something that he had heard either from a spiritual director or a confessor or somebody that just said, you know, like this might be a cross that our Lord, you know, just has, has given you or, or like some, there's like crazy things that go on in our heads. And, um, and so like, yes, it is possible to be free. And, and I, I've seen it in the lives of many people, um, probably like one of the best, you know, success stories was this one seminarian who he was applying to the seminary and he had about 45 days of freedom, 
doing a particular abstinence program that he was doing. And, um, and so the vocation instructor just said, well, well, he's not addicted if he's been, you know, free for 45 days. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, you know, the standard for discernment for freedom is actually like a year is when you have hope that you can live chastity. And, uh, and so he came to visit with me and I, I just said, look, I want you to do 90 12 step meetings in 90 days and go on this healing intensive. And you have an opportunity to do this before you enter seminary. And, um, and at the point where he went on to theology, he had been free for about two and a half, three years at that point. And, um, and just, just really was able to receive formation in, in a much greater way. Um, you know, like our prayer life becomes something, uh, it becomes a lot more focused on friendship with the Lord when we're free from sin. And, um, and so like, yes, it's definitely possible. And, but it is something that we, we do believe like it's possible with God's grace. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's possible when we live the, the genuine devotion, um, like I really like St. Francis de Sales when he talks about like when fruits are whole, they may be stored up securely, some in straw, some in sand, or even amid their own foliage. But once bruised, nothing can preserve them except for sugar and honey. Even so, the purity which has never been tampered with may well be preserved to the end. But once it has ceased to exist, nothing can ensure its existence but the genuine devotion. And and so, and that is, I think, a primary point that... um that needs to be driven home is that nothing once, once we've lost our purity, which unfortunately is probably most young people in our society, nothing can ensure its existence, but the genuine devotion, which means a complete surrender of our heart to our Lord. Mm -hmm. um, Father Sean, you're, um, you're kind of using some really helpful phrases and, and uh, points that, um, you know, in doing college ministry, we see this all across the board. But I think for, for a lot of people, when they think of addictions or they think of um, whether it's a substance uh, addiction or a chemical addiction or behavioral addictions and things like that, um, that the immediate thought is to move towards as some type and form of sobriety. And unfortunately, you get the, the temptation to kind of just white knuckle it uh, into those uh, phases or that's the, the primary move. But you're talking a lot about freedom. You're talking about devotion you're talking so how is that you know when there's a, a difference between uh kind of this white knuckling or like a, a, a preparation or a moving towards a genuine freedom like how, how does how does that shift take place yeah so so one thing that uh one way of looking at it i, I think is like a lot of us um, and a lot of young people struggle with Pelagianism of one form or another, right? Like, like I need to save myself or I can be saved by my own virtues or by human mm -hmm. virtues alone. And so, so when we approach sobriety from that Pelagian standpoint, that's when the explanation for falls always comes down to like, I didn't try hard enough. I'm not disciplined mm -hmm. enough. Um, I need to have like a million filters. I'm, I'm focused on externals instead of focused on the heart and, and sort of there's the, because in, in one perspective, well, everything's on me because I need to keep track of 90,000 different triggers out there and all the different externals and, 
And the other perspective says like everything depends on the Lord. And the only thing I need to focus on is remaining open to him as the one that can meet all my desires. And, um, and so like surrender is the language actually used in 12 step recovery. It's, it's a language of surrendering everything to the Lord. And, and that doesn't mean, and, and it even says this in the literature, you know, like, like some of us thought that like just going to meetings would fix us or our therapist would fix us or like my devotion, religious practices would fix me. But, but it really is about like, where's my heart oriented and, um, and so I would say that sobriety is a prerequisite to surrender, um, you know, because I often use the rich young man as an example of, of somebody who hears the gospel proclaimed, has a desire to live. What must I do to live to gain eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says is stop sinning, right? Like keep the commandments. And so in other words, like you need to stop all these sinful behaviors that you have or live in sobriety. Right. And then, it, and then he says, okay, I've done that. And then there's this little detail. And I think it's in Luke's account where he says, and then Jesus looked at him and loved him. So, so we have to stop sinning to notice the look of love. Hmm. Then we notice the look of love, which gives us the confidence to surrender because he looks at him, loves him, and then says, go sell everything you have and follow me. And, and so, so like the end state is, okay, I've entrusted my heart to our Lord. I believe he's enough for me. I believe he's the one that can meet my needs. There might be lots of tools I use or, or have to put in place in order to have sobriety enough to realize that. Um, I have to stop lying to myself about the fact that I don't have a problem or I just have this little problem on the side or I'm a holy person who acts out every three months. Um, that's another line I use at focus conferences a lot is like, Jesus didn't come to give us freedom for three months at a time. Um, and like he came that we might be free and, and to be really free and to fall in love with him and, and to continue to do that um, or to live in that, state of conversion that John Paul II talks about in Divas and Misericordia. Um, so, so it is, it is like that balancing act, I think for a lot of people is, um, okay, I need to, like, I need to do things to be sober, but the goal is that I live in conversion, right? And even in secular recovery programs, there's a difference between sobriety and living in recovery. Living in recovery would be convertible with what we talk about when we talk about conversion. Mm, okay. Okay. Maybe thinking about some of the distinctions that you've drawn between externals and internals, between the kind of helps and tools, which we find it easier to deploy, like, you know, Exodus 90 or like covenant eyes or like whatever else, you know, these kind of um, strategies that we have or methods that we have. And then the internals this kind of ongoing work of conversion, which you say, which you describe as, um, coming to fruition in surrender. Um, yeah, maybe can you help us do a little work of translation? Like, okay, we're going to put those things in place and then we're going to seek this, this interior conversion when it comes to abandonment. I think, you know, the first time I heard that preached at a Steubenville conference when I was 14, I was like, cool, but how, 
Um, you know, so like what, what goes into that? I imagine, you know, forgiveness, I imagine maybe there are some other things that could be at play, like, like therapy you mentioned, but like, what would you say are the parts when taken together help to bring somebody to the point of an ongoing conversion, which can have the confidence to make this act of surrender, which you described? Yeah. So, so I think, and th this is one of the reasons why I, I just started referring everybody to 12 step recovery because the steps themselves walk through that process. And like the first step is about self-knowledge where you do this inventory and have to admit you're powerless. So, so I have to inventory throughout my life. Every time I said, this is the last time, but it wasn't the last time, <laughs> right? Every time, like that means every time I ever went to confession and I thought to myself, this is the last time I'm ever going to say this, right? Um, there's those things pile up, you know, or I have to count how many hours of my life I've spent doing this because I'm in denial about the truth about who I am. Right. And, and that's found throughout the spiritual tradition of the church, right? Like the, like having humility or growing in self-knowledge is one of the first things. And, um, and then I, and then I have to challenge you know, myself or another person about like, do you believe that the Lord is capable of freeing you? Like, do you believe that Jesus can be enough for you? Because if I don't believe that, then I'm not, I'm going to get nowhere. And, um, and, and it's worth asking the question. I've, I was meeting with a group of young men and I said, like, do you believe that God can heal you? And some of them said, no. Um, and maybe that's because they, they tried certain things that didn't work for them. Or I think one of the most dangerous things we do as clergy is to give people formulas and say, this will work for you. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's just really complicated. And, um, and I've, I've, I experienced that in my own life, um, where, you know, somebody says something like, well, you know, I heard if you make a holy hour every day, that helps with that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I've done two holy hours a day and it didn't help um, because there was something in my heart that needed to change. And um, and so so it's working through those things. And then like, OK, I need to like admit who I am to another person, make a general confession. Like then there's like looking at my other character defects um, and other character defects are like, what are the other things in my life that could be a problem? Like for me personally, food was a problem and I didn't know it was a problem. Cause I didn't even think about the fact that every time I was really angry at somebody, I would just like go to McDonald's and get like a double Big Mac meal. Um, and, and so food was a problem and I needed to address that in order to really be free, um, in my own life. And then comes like, okay, now I'm going to work through forgiveness and, and the places or the places I need to ask forgiveness. Um, and forgiveness is really hard because there's a movement, I think it's just an interesting thing about the inner healing prayer movement right now is that there's a lot of like inner healing prayer that it's about forgiving people. Um, but then there's this other thing, which is like in a lot of cases, I actually need to go to that person and tell them I forgive them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and there can be a way in which we, we sort of stop short of that and allowing it to be incarnate in our life and, and to really change the way we live in every aspect of our life. And, and so there's, there's kind of all those things. And, um, my own experience was, 
um, I had to give up. I didn't maybe I had to admit that I tried to control people a lot, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I wake up with having manifestos in my head and fantasizing about what I would do if I was the Bishop or the Pope or somebody else. And, uh, and I had to surrender that to the Lord. Like I had to trust that our Lord is capable of taking care of all of these external problems that I have no control over. And, um, and, and live at peace with him and just trust him to do that. And, and I think that's, that's a pretty common one, especially with people who are religious people. Um, oftentimes like their biggest resentments are towards like leaders who have fallen short in their life. And, um, and that can lead to a lot of relapsing. Um, you, you mentioned how a little bit of like, okay, part of the risks for clergy or priest is to give these kind of, you know, bite-sized formulae and actions. If you just do this, then you'll get help, like pray your rosary every day, and then you'll never be tempted or things like that. Um, what I found, you know, this is not an uncommon sin to hear in the confessional. Um, it's pretty frequent and, um, helping people to, or what I've seen is that so many people, they only deal with this in the context of the confessional and what are healthy, what are appropriate ways to kind of deal with, you know, bring it out into the light, um, you know, allow the light of Christ to shine in this both in the confessional, but even outside of it, because if it's just relegated to the, the confessional, there's never going to be this like deep, true movement towards freedom. So when we're talking about helping people to move into recovery, helping people move into full healing and freedom, uh, what are some of those ways to help them actually not have the formulae of like, do this and you'll be fine, but actually bring it into the light of the Christ in as well as outside of the confessional? Yeah. So, so in the confessional, um, one of the things that we need to emphasize more is confessing your sins completely. Right. And which means I'm not going to use euphemisms. Um, I'm going to name my sins and I'm going to confess my grave sins by number and kind. When it comes to pornography, number and kind probably means like how much time I'm spending watching pornography, right? Because there is a difference between five minutes and five hours. Um, and there's something more honest in that, right? Because like our disposition to receive forgiveness is based on repentance, right? Like we have to repent and repentance sounds like I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know what I deserve, right? And I'm going to be vulnerable to receiving God's mercy. I'm not presuming on receiving God's mercy. Um, and, and in order to to be open to the grace. Like I have to admit who I am and not be holding anything back. Um, and, and we can help people to do that as clergy, I think by just asking them, can I ask you a few questions to help you to make a complete confession and a good confession? Um, because we always want to get their consent if we're going to ask them more questions, especially about difficult things. And then, um, some of the questions that I ask people if they give consent are, like how often do you fall into the sin generally speaking um because they might be on the confession circuit you know where they go to different priests all the time because they don't want to ever admit how big a problem they have um when did this start for you and the main reason that's that is because it probably was when they were really young and if it started when they were really young it's going to be a lot harder for them to be free and 
and there's an opportunity right to speak god's mercy into the life of like the 10 year old inside of them that got exposed to mm -hmm. hardcore pornography on their phone um have you ever talked to anybody outside of the confessional about this <laughs> um a follow-up question might be have you ever talked to anybody who knows what they're talking about um like have you talked to anybody who's actually free have you talked to anybody who's been trained have you talked to a counselor um and do you really want to be free? And if you really want to be free, I'm just going to invite you to have a conversation outside of confession about this so that we can continue to talk about it and follow up because you deserve to have the time and space to tell your story. And if you want somebody to receive your story, I'm willing to receive your story. And, um, and I think that, you know, the, we as priests are the first kind of people that pe anybody talks to in the confessional the more we can make ourselves available for conversations outside of confession. Well, then once it's outside of confession, then we can keep talking, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, a lot of times people ask us to keep secrets from ourselves. Um, you know, like somebody might even come to confession face to face, but then if they never want to talk outside of confession, the expectation is that we're going to pretend like we don't know that they're struggling with this thing, yeah. which makes things really, it makes it really difficult to, um, it makes it really difficult to, to be free. It kind of adds a layer of shame there. Um, um, okay. So I'm thinking about this, this particular difficulty of confronting the truth of ourself or of our lives. Um, I've heard it said once, you know, in order to be truly free, you need to prefer the truth to yourself until such time as you discover what is most true about yourself. Um, and I'm thinking of the way that the Lord elicits this encounter with the truth of our lives, like, you know, the one healing story in the gospel of John, where a man's been lying beside this, beside this pool for 38 years, waiting for the water to be disturbed. So that way he can be the first in and subsequently, you know, like be, be again whole. Uh, and the, the Lord asks him not like, how can I help you get in the water first? He asks him, you know, like, do, do, do you, what do you want? Like, what do you want? And he says, you know, I want to be healed. He's like, okay. Right. But, but he, he gets him to, to formulate that or he gets him to formulate his desire or like to bring his desire out. Um, maybe, yeah, just again, based on your, your experience of this ministry, what are ways in which people lie to themselves and how are ways in which we could help them kind of formulate their genuine desire and help them to confront those lies and, you know, bring them into the light of the truth. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, there's that question, like, do you want to be free? And to be really honest about it, um, there's another question, which is, do you not want to be free? <laughs> and, and we have to be honest about that. Um, like, are you willing to be honest that like the reason that you had a relapse, if we use the word language of relapse or the reason that you acted out or the reason, like whatever language we're using, um, are you willing to admit that you did it because you just wanted to, or at least there's a part of you that just wanted to, okay. um, because the place that we lie to ourselves is when, um, well, I did this, but I don't want to be doing it. And like, it, it, like, that's not who I am. And da, da, but they might be more honest just to say like, yeah, there's a part of me that I just prefer this to God, or I believe this is more trustworthy than God is. Well, okay. Cause then we can work in that. And, and if we're honest about it, okay, then I, then I can start <laughs> giving that up. But if it just stays hidden and, 
and I'm, I'm lying to myself about it. Like there's no moving forward. Um, because like whatever language we use again, like if that part of me that just wants to do it, um, if every time somebody goes to confession, they, I remember like, I remember being a seminarian struggling, going to confession and giving a moral theology lesson to the priest hearing my confession to make sure that they understood that I wasn't really that culpable for what I did. Um, you know, and I'm being a little bit hyperbolic when I say that, but, but I'm confessing like every possible circumstance that might mitigate my culpability yeah. and in the midst of confessing the sin, instead of just saying like, I did this mm-hmm. and, um, and, and that's not what repentance sounds like. Like the prodigal son doesn't go to the father and say, like, oh, but I have all these like external circumstances and, and all these things that happened in my life. And, and this is why I did this. And I didn't really want to do it. And, and like the first prostitute I slept with, she kind of like abused me. And then I kept repeating the action over and over and over again. And, and that's why I did this. So you should really let me back in your house. Like he doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. It's just father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. And, and so and that might sound like really harsh, but, but the, the flip side is, okay, if I actually go to the Lord in that state and I receive his forgiveness and I realize he loves me anyways, that is the most powerful thing that can happen in my life. And it's not possible if I'm constantly excusing my behaviors. Um, and I, I think a lot of times like moral theology, the purpose of moral theology is to help like confessors to evaluate moral actions after they've taken place. The purpose of moral theology is not for us to discern culpability before committing an action, but we can, we tend to use it that way, especially when we're smart religious people, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which the AA big book says are the hardest people to get sober are smart and religious people. Mm-hmm. um in in helping that individual who's coming in there who let's say is intelligent and and religious and you're helping them to like maybe be a little more simple and just say like yeah i we're gonna take all the circumstances out of it we're gonna just say say what happened in that um but you also find with these things there's an extreme amount of scrupulosity at the same time and so how do you then balance that kind of um that that pastoral sense of helping people to understand that yeah you know addictions is when somebody does lose a certain amount of power over their life and they're fully in in an uh, an addiction um so how do you kind of temper that and help people to see like okay with addiction there's a loss of uh control loss of power uh, um in those sense that there's a dependency while at the same time not immediately jump into the scrupulosity and understanding uh, the freedom that God gives us and that he is desiring for each and every one of us. Yeah. So, um, so again, before answering, I'm just going to, again, emphasize that like every case is completely unique and it's super complicated, right? Like it's one of those things, like the solution is simple, but it's really complicated getting to it. Right. The solution (laughs) is I'm going to surrender my life to God and, but it's really complicated getting to it. So when you talk about scrupulosity, Um, like I have worked with scrupulous people who like genuinely like think they need to go to confession for every impure thought that jumps into their head. Um, one thing that's really common, especially among intelligent religious people is that they grew up with zero sex education 
or education for love or however we want to say. So they have scrupulous, they have shame about things that are just normal. And, and we can make a distinction between what's normal and what's healthy. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's normal that a 19 year old male in the United States has been looking at pornography for about five years. It's normal. It's not healthy. It's normal. It's normal that if you get exposed to pornography before puberty, that you have a lot of difficulty navigating adolescence because it adds a layer of shame to just normal biological functions. And so, so sometimes we have to like roll things back and, and discern, okay, like what are, what do they think is, is wrong? And is that a sin for them or not a sin for them? Like you're going to have invasive impure thoughts that are memories that pop into your head, like any other memory pops into your head, but because it's a sexual memory, there's a lot of shame attached to it. And, and so how do we reduce that shame? We can reduce that shame by just helping them to walk through their history, understand this is part of my history. It's just memory. I can just surrender that to God. Um, we need to adjust expectations so that my expectation is not that healing looks like I'd never had my history. Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of people, their expectation is if I get healed, it's going to be as if it never happened to me, which is just isn't true. Right, right, right. You know, and I think, I think like Thomas talks about intellective memory, right? Where like you can develop like a virtue where there was one's advice. But if you fall back into it, you're going to pick up where you left off. Right. You don't get to start over at like from zero. Like you don't. And that's part of like the brain science um, rhetoric that I don't like is this idea that it takes 90 days to heal your brain because people have this idea that once I hit 90 days, it's going to be as if I never had this problem. Mm -hmm. But that's just not true um, because then they have a temptation to test it out. Right. Like when I was 13, I watched this rated R movie and I didn't like act out or anything. It was just kind of a little bit exciting. So I'm just going to try that now that I'm 90 days. For That's ridiculous. Um, and I'm just saying it because people do it. And uh, and so um, like living in conversion for, for any Christian living in conversion means I'm going to live my life differently for the rest of my life. And um, and so there's just certain things and situations I have to understand that's going to be a trigger for me. And I just can't do that anymore. Um, you know, in my own history, I tell the story a lot that, um, like when I was in the seminary, we didn't have high speed internet. Um, but one time I stopped at this hotel on the way between Lincoln and Michigan and, uh, there was pornography on the TV and I watched pornography on the TV. And then every time I passed that town, I stopped at that same hotel for like a four year period driving back and forth between Philadelphia and Lincoln. Um, so today in freedom, living in freedom, if I'm driving across Iowa and I start getting towards Davenport, my brain starts getting queued up like, Oh, this is where we do that thing. And I just have to not understand that's part of my history. It's like a vulnerability that I have. And so I get on my phone and I call friends starting in like Iowa city. And I stay on my phone until I get to Joliet, Illinois and I'm fine. And, and, but, but that's just how I have to live my life now because there's a vulnerability in my history and, and I, I don't have shame about it. I don't think like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person because I start to have invasive thoughts that are based on memories. 
Um, and so some of that, when you talk about scrupulosity, I think sometimes people are scrupulous about invasive thoughts that aren't sinful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's super helpful. And I think there's a sense in which, um, yeah, sometimes the way that we describe healing and growth, uh, you know, even the biblical language of it, uh, you know, we're using images, we're using metaphors, we're using analogies, uh, but they don't always translate one for one. It's like, okay, the Lord will genuinely make our sins, which are at present like scarlet to be white as snow. That's true. Uh, but the, the Lord won't make what has happened not to have happened because that's contradictory, you know? So it's, it's good to have, yeah, just like a sense for, and it doesn't have to be an advanced degree in metaphysics, uh, but just a sense for what is and what isn't. And I think those are the types of conversations that we can help host yes. and um, yeah, we can just, we can walk through. So we've come to the end of our time, but thank, thanks so much for having uh, dedicated your time. Uh, thanks so much for having explained uh, a lot of these super important things. Uh, I know. Yeah, we've, we've appreciated it and our listeners will appreciate it too. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And if folks want to follow up uh, specifically with resources, which you find to be helpful uh, in the struggle uh, or ways that they can be in touch with you, your ministry, uh, what are some directions you would point them? Yeah, they can uh, always like find my information on our parish website is where people have been finding me lately, which is St. Leo and St. Martin.com. Um, also, uh, my YouTube channel is probably the place where they can find the most content that I've produced. I'm not a great social media active person, but, uh, but I do re record talks that I give and I post them there. I also have like my podcast of talks and homilies on uh, iTunes, Apple podcasts, or on SoundCloud. Dig. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Nova. Yeah, certainly Nova prayers for you and for your ongoing ministry. Uh, we're, we're grateful for yours. So turning then to our listeners, thanks as always for listening to God's planning. Uh, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The father Sean isn't especially present on any of those things yet. Other people are. And when you like stuff there, other stuff happens, which shows my profound knowledge of the algorithm. Uh, so if you would like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or on your podcast app and leave a five-star review. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, you can follow the link in the description or show notes. In that same description and or show notes, you'll also find links for merchandise and then for upcoming events. So at this stage of the game, we have two retreats which are open for applications. One is in Malvern, Pennsylvania, June 16th through 18th, and that's for everybody 21 years and older. Um, at my last count, we still have like 17 slots. So we've had like 101 people apply, which is awesome. And again, because of generous donations back in November, we're able to reduce the cost below what it costs for the retreat center. So we're pumped. Uh, and then the second is a men's retreat, which will take place August 10th through 13th in Brevard, North Carolina at Camp Catalea Chasatanga. Uh, so that's, yeah, again, men 21 years so maybe like 35, I've actually forgotten. It's just, you know, you have to be fit enough to hike. So if you're a little older than that, just say, I'm super fit to hike. And then just send that by way of explanation with your application. All right. So hope to see you at either of those events or both of those events. Uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning. Mm -hmm.